Thank you, Carrie, for that offertory this morning, and thank you for your faithful giving unto the Lord. As Carrie is praying, I, I, <laughs> and funny how things just pop into your brain, but it had a lot of number of years ago that we used to do our, our announcements kind of in the middle of the service, and that bothered me to some extent, and so I, I made the change. I, I, I got a little flack for it, to be honest with you, but... But I, but I moved the announcements to the beginning to kind of get them out of the way so we could focus on worship. And, and I want to instruct you today, every aspect of our service is meant to be worship. Every aspect of it. You giving of your tithes and offerings should be done in a worshipful manner. And what I really appreciate what Sally and, and Carrie do is they play the piano in the order of our service that that leads us right into a reading of God's word is. Um, somebody said one time, a pastor is worth absolutely nothing if he doesn't pray. And that time right then when you're giving and they're playing is my time for a final plead with the Lord to do that which only he can do. Can I just encourage you? Be worshipful in everything that we do. Okay? Um, I want to take you to Job again. If you were with us last week, we, had, we read at least a portion of our service. Um, message came out of Job, if you recall. It's Job 37. I want to kind of continue along with this same thought and kind of open up as I've been waiting on the Lord in this, uh, this character of Job in this uh, ancient book of Job and um, to deepen our understanding um, of just uh, what the Lord would have for us. So uh, just two verses, I think, today, Job 38, um, verses 22 and 23. This is Job 38, 22 and 23. Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that gathers us together here. For your word tells us, Lord, that we ought not to forsake the gathering of the saints together. For it is here, Lord, that you manifest your presence. We recognize you to be omnipresent in all places and seeing all things. But, Lord, there is something special when your people gather together with you, that you manifest yourself and you show yourself how fruitless this would be if that were not true. And so, Lord, today we would that you'd hide your servant again behind the cross and that the message would be uh, from you and for you and that, Lord, as you speak through these fallible lips of clay, you would do so in a manner that would penetrate not simply our minds but our hearts as well and that you would turn our hearts to you. Teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you recall, if you were with us last week, Ephesians chapter uh, 1 is where we began our discussion. I want to go back there just, just very quickly if we can. Uh, we did a sword drill this morning in, in Sunday school, if you're familiar with that, what, what that is, um, and uh, learning to quickly get to passages of Scripture. It's a challenge 
for us sometimes. Um, but just to go back to Ephesians, just to kind of refresh our memories, if you'll remember um, verses 19 uh, through 21 of Ephesians chapter 1, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. If you recall, we talked about this issue of the word power here repeated three times at the pen of Paul, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there are three different words. The first one is dunamis, uh, means an inherent power that God has. The second one is kratos, which is the manifestation of that inherent power. And the third one, exousia, is his authoritative power. And remember we talked about it, that God is righteous and just in his authority to manifest his inherent power according to whatever he decides is right to do. Um, if we were to just put one word on it, uh, we would say uh, uh, omnipotent, that God is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. Um, so much so is that word that it's hard for us to, to fully comprehend it. Uh, in the weakness that we are, it's hard to comprehend a being that is omnipotent in authority and in inherent power and that he manifests that power. Remember we talked about it, how that, that even in the snow that, 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 that kind of slowed us up a little bit last week and and I had opportunity to speak at the lodge on Thursday, and I, I spoke out of kind of this same thing, but it was a little different nuance in that, in that message. And, and uh, Edna's here today, and, and uh, I, I, I was preparing them for Thanksgiving by going back to what we had in part talked about, how that the opposite of Thanksgiving is murmuring and complaining. And that's true. And so, so just like we prepare a Thanksgiving meal and it may take our, our wives or whatever, maybe hours or even days to prepare and then we dine on it in what, 15, 20 minutes, um, we should be preparing for Thanksgiving. And one of the ways we can prepare for Thanksgiving is to take the things that God does when he demonstrates his power, whether they affect us in a positive or a negative way for the context of our day, that we should stop and, and, and admire and consider the Lord. And not to complain about what he's doing or murmur at what he's doing, but ask ourselves the question, what is it that you are doing that I might grow thereby? See, it, it, it's a good message. Um, but, but I was thinking about what we studied, and then you get into chapter 38 and these two verses that I just brought to you. Uh, there you have a, another sense of this idea um, that is brought through here. I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Job before or not. Um, it is considered by some biblical historians to be the, the oldest book in your Bible. Um, I, I can't say for sure how they come up with that or if that's true but it but it's an ancient book for sure 
And the character of Job is an important character within our Bibles. And so what I want to do is I want to take an, an overview of the book of Job. Is vanity, and here's one of them. I've, I've heard people do that. Take a passage out of Ecclesiastes where he's making the point that it's vanity, it's worthless, and people have taken that verse to mean something that has worth. You see the, the problem? Job is like that. We have different people talking in Job, bringing us different thought, and the whole point of the book is to glorify God. And sometimes God is not glorified in how we present him. Well, let's look at Job. Let's go to the, the opening chapter. Eventually we'll get to that nugget of 38 verses 22 and 23 in the context of where it's there. But if you go back to the very opening verse of chapter 1 of Job, that's where we will begin. That's typically the right place to begin reading a book. <laughs> I had this thought in the middle of the night. I got an extra hour of sleep last night, supposedly, by moving that clock around a little bit. But like most of my Saturday nights and early Sunday mornings, there's not a whole lot of sleeping going on. And I'm rolling this stuff through my mind and listening for the Lord and spending time in prayer. And I, I don't tell you that like I, like I don't like it. I do like it, but then I also like Sunday afternoons. <laughs> but I got, I got to thinking, you got to bear with me here for just a minute. So I have a, I have a phone that is smarter than I. And, and if I were to take that phone and in that little box where you search... And if I were to write in there, define J-O-B, and hit the little thing, and it would come back, and it would tell me what? Job. An occupation. That's what it would tell me. In that one particular case, I'm smarter than my phone. I love that. But I got to thinking about, about the Word of God, and it, it, the word job never shows up in there. Not one time. We have workers. We have fellow workers. We have slaves. We have vocations. We have all of these things. We have laborers and the harvest field. We have all this issue, and God has is, is told us that we are to work. We're to work six days and rest one. And so we have scripture that says a man is worse than an infidel if he doesn't work and, and, and provide for his family. This issue of work has become a four-letter word in our culture. It's not a four-letter word. God has created you to be creative, and, and you glorify God in your work, whatever it is, if you do all things as unto the Lord. Did you know that? If you're a rancher today, you can glorify God by being a rancher and by being the best rancher you can be. Well, interestingly enough, do you know what Job's job was? 
He had livestock and farmland. He raised a family. And he held fast to God. And he eschewed evil. So bear with me, but Job's job was a job that Job had. And Job did a really good job at his job. Why are you laughing? Okay, that is, that is funny, right? So when we go back to the beginning of the book of Job, what we read here is very important. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. There's our definition, our description that God gives us in his word of this man whose name is Job. And I would say to you, well done, Job, in your job. Now, what we can't do with that verse is we can't make that verse to say that Job never sinned. And the reason I say that is because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are born with a sin nature. I can tell you that the Bible says that all of our righteousness stands before God as filthy rags. No, we cannot take that passage to mean that somehow Job is excluded from that which is the reality for every human being born from Adam and Eve. You know, there's certain people in our Bibles. Um, I think of Joseph, for example, a man that the Bible does not record any sin. Does not mean he didn't sin. Um, I think of Daniel, the same thing of Daniel. The Bible does not record anything of sin in Daniel's life. Does not mean that he did not sin. I think of the kings in the Old Testament, those very few of the 38 kings, that the report of God was they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and according to their father. Does not mean they did not sin. What this means, I believe, at the opening of the book of Job is this is a man who lived out his life according as best he could according to the character and the calling of God on his life. He did the best that he could do. He did the best job he could do with his family as he prayed over his, his sons and daughters in case they might sin. He did the best he could do by providing for his family. He did the best he could do by following hard after the Lord. And he did the best he could do by eschewing and staying away from evil. This was a good man. And of course you, you know the story. You know the story how that Satan had gone up to heaven and had and and the Lord said, Have you considered, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan was allowed to go and to begin to tempt him with things and to cause all kinds of issues within his life. Right? You're familiar with those? The loss of his children, the loss of his livestock eventually to be covered over with boils to the point that his wife would say, why don't you just curse God and die? At the end of chapter 1, this man under this great affliction says this in verses 21 and 22. And said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, 
Job sinned not, nor did he charge God foolishly. This is a stalwart man of God. He would go on even in chapter 13, I believe it is, that that Job would say, even if God should slay me, yet I will trust him. And when we got to chapter 37, and and as we read what we read last week, we discovered that here is a man, a, a friend of Job's, a man by the name of Elihu, um, we're introduced to him in, in verse, or chapter 36. And Elihu is speaking to him and encouraging him and giving him good godly counsel. But before Elihu speaks to him, three other friends have come to Job's aid. I love that. That we are called to. If you know a brother or sister who is struggling in something, you are called to come to them and be an aid to them. And they come. You remember the the three men, um, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And they they come there, the three of them, and they, they sit there quietly with Job for seven days. They don't say anything for seven days. And then they begin to try to instruct Job in his setting and try to inform him of what is wrong. They should have stayed quiet. Practical advice for you as a Christian today. If you go to the aid of a brother who is struggling and you don't know why he's struggling, don't think that you do or that you have to say something. <laughs> I, can remember, I can remember my dad so many years ago, he'd say, whenever you're you know, ministering to somebody, never say, I know what you're going through. Because you don't. And so what I want to do before we get to this that Elihu gives him, which is godly instruction, before we get there, I want to just highlight some of what these other three well-meaning friends are trying to instruct Job in, okay? And I've just picked out a few. Um, Look at Job. Actually, I'm not even going to get to them. First, I'm going to get to Elihu and how he corrects those three, and then we'll talk about what it is that they were doing. Uh, Job chapter 32, um, verses 3 through 10. Actually, I'll begin at the very beginning of of 32. Again, that's the place usually to start. Uh, This is Job 32, 1 through 10. So these three men ceased to answer Job. They ceased to talk to Job. Because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakai, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet they condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were older than he. And Elihu saw that there was 
no answer in the mouth of these three men. Then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barakai, uh, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young and you are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and did not show you my opinion. I said, days should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the inspiration of the Almighty gives them understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. Oh, you see, you've got a righteous indignation now towards these three for the bad instruction they've been giving Job. And also now Job's attention has gone to his own righteousness and not the righteousness of God. You see what these three are doing is diminishing what Job knew to be true at the end of chapter 1. You see, at the end of chapter 1, when, when, when Job says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return hither. The Lord is given, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What Job was proclaiming there in verse 21 of chapter 1 is, My situation in life does not change who God is. My situation in life, no matter the mountaintop or the valley, does not change the nature or the character of God is revealed to me. And therefore, he would go on to say in chapter 13, even if he should slay me, yet I will trust him. Why? Because he is God. If I can give you one thing today, it would be, why don't we just let God be God? Instead of trying to make him something in, that he's not. So Elihu is angered by this instruction that these, they've been giving. If you look at chapter 33 of Job and verses 8 through 12. Again, this is Elihu speaking. This is chapter 33, verses 8 through 12. Surely thou hast spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasion against me. He counts me for his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He marks all my paths. Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. You see, Elihu says, Job, this is what you've been saying. What you've been saying is, I'm a righteous man, and God has treated me poorly. That is completely different than what he stated at the end of chapter 1. His faith in God is being torn down by the instruction of these three well-meaning men. If you go on to chapter 34 and verse 12. What a great verse this is, as Elihu instructs him in who God is. He says, yes, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. Because he is righteous in what he does. His authority is righteous to demonstrate his power. What God does is always right. But Job had begun to think that God had been treating him unfairly I wonder how many times that's happened in my life 
I wonder how many times it's happened in conversation when we say things like, how could that happen to a good man? What did I do to deserve that? Didn't Billy Joel write a song that said, only the good die young? This is the big question. This is the big question. How, how could God allow something like that to happen to Job, who is a righteous, a good man? And Job has begun, because of the teaching of these three men, he has begun to question God's authority and power to do what God does. And we do the same thing. We praise God when it's a blessing to us. And we question God when it goes south. Shame on us. Go on to chapter 35. Some people are saying, I wish I'd have stayed home today. And I remind you, I remind you, I have to wrestle with this long and hard before it comes to you. Chapter 35, verses 1 and 2, Elihu spoke moreover and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou said, My righteousness is more than God's? You see what's happened here? Because of the false teaching of these three men, Job now has come to a position where the most important thing in his life is maintaining his own righteousness as opposed to the righteousness of God to do whatever God will do, whether he gives or takes away. The question then is, what's being presented by these three men? And this is what's being presented. And in many circles of Christianity today, this is being presented today. There's this idea, and certainly we can find some grounds for it within Scripture. And the idea is the retribution of God. It's this idea that God repays according to your actions. And so we would look at passages like Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give and it shall be given back unto you multiplied. We would listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. We would tie to this the writer of Hebrews chapter 12, that God chastens those he loves. That's the other side of it. And what we have within Scripture is this idea presented to us that God rewards good and punishes evil. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But the problem of the teaching of these three to Job is they had narrowed God's retribution down to that thing and that thing only. That if you're going through a hardship, Job, it's because you have sin in your life. I know it's true. It has to be true, even though I can't see any sin in you. And we do the same thing. We have moved, in many cases, in evangelical Christian thought, 
that God somehow is owing to me as to my righteousness or not. That somehow God has to respond to me when I live righteously. He has to bless me. And you may think that sounds crazy, but all you need to do is turn on your television set and listen to a man say, if you give, God will give you more. The whole prosperity preaching heresy hinges on a narrow thought of God that God never intended to be encapsulated in. And how do I know this to be true? Many, many, many Christians around the world today are suffering like Job. And it is not because of sin in their life. It's because we live in a fallen world. Many of the people in the Bible, I mentioned Joseph earlier, a man the Scripture does not record any sin. What happened to Job? His brothers hated him. They threw him in a well. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Potiphar's wife seduces him. He throws him in prison. He stays in prison. He is forgotten in prison. That happened to Joseph. What was Joseph's claim? What man is meant for evil, God is meant for good. What about Daniel? Daniel was taken into captivity in Babylon. Daniel was thrown in a, in a den of lions. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is it their sin that caused them to be thrown in a fiery furnace? No, it is not. You see, when we narrow God down and we put him in a box and say, this is how God works, I know it's true, you have stepped out of line. And a lie who is right to be angry at that kind of false thought. Today, people that buy into the prosperity preaching heresy and things don't go right, they're left with two things to determine. Either I'm a sinner that has not been forgiven by God or God is not who he said he was. And either one of those conclusions will destroy your faith. My setting in life does not in any way change the truth of who God is. Because He is God. How profoundly simple is that statement? He is God. And He has the authority the innate power, and he can manifest that power however he sees fit. You know what the problem with that is? But what about me? What about my desires? What about what pleases me? What about what makes me happy? And what we end up doing is we end up putting ourselves in the position of God and making him subservient unto us. We, ele we elevate, just as Elihu said, we elevate our own righteousness above the righteousness of God. You are not God. I am not God. God is God. He gives. He takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see how plain that is? But when we start thinking more of our own righteousness, 
When we start thinking too highly of ourselves, we immediately dethrone God in our minds. I will tell you today, I have all kinds of questions about why God does what God does. There are many things that God does that I don't understand. And it's okay to have questions about God. But it is not okay to question Him. Do you understand the difference? When I'm following hard after Christ, there are many things that I don't understand. But what I do understand is that God is God. It's interesting how we sang a song. I know not what the day may bring. But what? I know whom I believe it. I know that whether the path is dark and hard or sunshine fills my day, I don't know what the day brings, but I know who God is. And that doesn't change. That doesn't change. You see, when you get to Job chapter 38, in our two verses for today, somebody say, how in the world did you get that out of two verses? Well, I just started there. But what you have in chapter 38 of Job, verses 22 and 23, are questions. And these are questions that Elihu is asking Job. And the answer to all of the questions that Elihu asks of Job, the answer to those questions is, No, I don't know. No, I wasn't there when God did that. No, I don't have the power to do what God has done. No, I am not God. This is the only passage of Scripture in my Bible where beginning in chapter 37 is what I meant to say. Let me back up. I just, I just spoke wrongly. Chapter 37 is where Elihu presents questions. Chapter 38 begins this way. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and beginning with chapter 38, going through chapter into 39 and even into 40 and even into 41, God asks Job, if I counted correctly, 77 questions that Job doesn't have the answer for. It's the only place in my Bible where the most, the most marked thing are the punctuated question marks. Because that's the point. God is saying to Job, what do you know? And the answer? Not much. And God's making a point. You don't know. But I do. Who are you? Who are you to question me? Who are you to question me? The conclusion of what takes place here then for Job is a time to repent. And it's a time to grieve in his arrogance and his questioning of God. We find it in chapter 40. And then into 41. Listen to what the Lord says to Job in chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? You that reprove God, answer it. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, Surely, behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, not twice, but I will proceed no further. Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins now like a man. I will demand of you, and you can declare now unto me. Will thou also disannul my judgments? Wilt thou condemn me, that thou mayest be righteous? Hast thou an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like him? Deck yourself now with majesty and excellence, and array yourself in glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of your wrath, and behold everyone that is proud, and abase him. Look at everyone that is proud, and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto you that thine own righteousness can save you. (laughs) The response to the 77 questions that God presents to him is found then in chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord, and he said, I know that thou can do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not, here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare, un- and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now, but now my eye sees you. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, oh, excuse me, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, that the Lord sent unto Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore take unto you seven bullocks and seven rams, and go unto thy servant Job, and offer up to yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. You know, in the New Testament, we would go to a passage like Romans chapter 11. I can think of a number of places to go in the Old Testament. Does the pot have a right to question the potter why you have made me so? But in Romans chapter 11... Verses 33 through 36, hear then the word of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to him that it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, 
to simply let you be God. Omnipotent, omniscient, to let simply, Lord, you be the director and the guider of our lives. We don't have to understand everything you're doing, but we must understand that you are. We don't have to even agree with the way things confront us, but we must surrender to your will. And so, Lord, to simply let you be you is the calling upon our lives. Not, to, not that we don't have questions. We do have questions, but that we would not question your integrity, your judgment, your counsel, your retribution. And so, Lord, I, I think so many times that the answer to these things that uh, plague us is simply to humble ourselves before you. And to let you be God. And in that you share your grace with those who are humble and you resist the proud. Lord, it's okay. It's okay for me in a situation of difficulty to say, I'm not sure what the Lord is doing, but I know he's at work. He gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Lord, teach us to be clay in the potter's hand to allow you to mold and to make us to fashion us into a vessel of honor for your glory how you do that lord is your doing we simply submit to it thanking you lord for your unfathomable love and your grace that is beyond comprehension and to always keep in mind lord that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose for you have purposed us in Christ Jesus. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.